The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Alliance Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to another episode of the Rebel Podcast. Once again, I am P. Nate, and once again, unfortunately, I'm recording all by my lonesome, all on my own. Chris Poots is not with me. I'm missing my partner in crime, and I know that comes as a great disappointment to many of you. I've had a lot of people reach out and ask where Chris is. He hasn't been on the podcast in quite a while. Well, have no fear. Uh, Chris has not quit on us, nor has he been fired from the podcast. We miss Chris for sure, and the time will come again when he and I are recording together as things should be, and everything will seem right in the world. But for right now, he's busy. Our schedules, it's no, no uh, surprise to any of you, our schedules have just not uh, lined up recently, and it's been a little bit more difficult for he and I to find overlapping free time. Our schedules aren't very compatible right now, but we are working it out. And he's also got some stuff going on in his life that he's uh, focused on right now and needs to be focused on. And you can say some generic prayers for Chris as he goes through that stuff and works out his new schedule. In the meantime, you're stuck with just me again and got quite a bit of feedback from the podcast I recorded on my own a little while ago, Spotting the Lie. And we looked at a couple of movies, Christmas movies in particular. And what I wanted to do was look at another popular Christmas movie, something that just came out in theaters that I have the opportunity to kind of spot the lie with. I'm going to do that and I'm going to give some general thoughts about Christmas and I'm going to go to a unique place of scripture, I think, to talk about it. So I just want to kind of prepare you for Advent. I'm recording this on December 2nd. So the Advent season is upon us and that's a great time actually to plug the rest of the network because some of our friends over at the Awakening Reformation podcast, Grant and Erica Van Brimmer, along with their friends, Sandra and Scotty Rollett have rolled out a phenomenal tool for you and your family to use this Advent season called Behold Your King. So the old blog posts that are still on the site, if you go to rebelalliancemedia.com, they're available there, but it has been published by Ezra Press and our friends over at the Ezra Institute have published Behold Your King as an Advent study guide for your family. And so that can help you weave your way through the Christmas season with your family. It's designed with families in mind. So there's an, a narrative Advent reading. There's a short devotional to reflect on the Christmas season. And there's some hymns to go along with your family worship. And, and I would recommend that to you. Uh, we've handed it out to many of the families in our church and a lot of them are benefiting from it. But that's from Grant and Erica Van Brimmer over at Awakening Reformation Podcast. They're a part of this network that we call the Rebel Alliance. You could go to rebelalliancemedia.com for all the podcasts, all of the blog posts, and all of the videos. We have uh, Eschatology 201 has been a great hit, I think. Gotten a lot of feedback on people enjoying that. And for any of you who have been listening to the Rebel Podcast for a long time, phrases like eschatology and 
optimistic eschatology and post-millennialism and the kingdom of God, those kinds of phrases won't be new to anybody who's been listening to the Rebel Podcast for quite a while, but you might have friends who are caught up in maybe some dispensational theology, or they might just not have thought long and hard about how God's story ends. And though that video teaching series, Eschatology 201, linked to on our website, available on our YouTube page, or you can go and find the link on our Facebook page, has been a great starting place for a lot of people. So I would encourage you, grab one of those off YouTube, share the link on your Facebook page, and tag a couple of your friends who you think need an overhaul of their eschatology. And I would encourage you to do that. And if you do that, tag us in it as well so we can kind of follow along in the conversation. And this whole podcast exists to help you engage culture. And sometimes that means engaging your Christian friends to help equip them to engage culture. And one of the things we really believe here at Rebel Alliance is that with an optimistic eschatology, you are far more equipped to engage culture with an optimistic attitude and a knowledge and a faith that Christ is going to win this earth and this culture. And great place to start as a place to resource with regard to that is the Eschatology 201 series. So anyway, all that said, I would just encourage you to avail yourself of all those resources. And then I'm going to jump into Rebel News here. Rebel News, sometimes we jump and we look at Christian headlines or headlines in the culture and look at them, sorry, with a Christian our biblical worldview. And a lot of times we're making fun of the culture. There's a lot of craziness going on. There's a lot of silliness in the culture right now. And so sometimes we're kind of poking fun and reading headlines thinking, is this possibly true? And giving you some resources or some thoughts to how you can engage about some of these topics. But today it's a little bit more of a serious headline. Uh, there's a an article over on Life Site News. It was uh, published just this morning. The headline reads, More evidence that porn leads men to abuse women and sometimes kills them. So one of the things that we've been passionate about in the midst of sort of a Me Too year or two years, all of the rise of feminism and a lot of the Me Too stuff that's gone on in the last little while, and we've been critical of that movement for, I think, very good reasons. But one of the things that we said in terms of, you know, rather than kind of arbitrarily throwing up a hashtag and adding yourself to this sort of group of faceless women who aren't necessarily naming names and are actually necessarily doing anything to bring about actual justice when there are actual predators and abusers out there, one of the things that we said is a very, very practical way for Christians to fight the abuse of women and involve themselves in a sort of Me Too-ish movement that would be far more biblical is just to fight against pornography, fight against this very prevalent sin in our culture and even in our churches. And we actually have some resources that we're looking into here at Rebel Alliance to partner with. We have some friends who are starting some podcast series that we're going to be able to link to that will help, I think, with some of this stuff. But in the meantime, I want to encourage you to read this article on LifeSite News, as I said, entitled, More Evidence That Porn Leads Men to Abuse Women. And what's really disturbing about this is when you think about what some of the, you know, we don't have to play spot the lie with kind of a best top of the box office movie that came out a couple of years ago, Fifty Shades of Grey, that's the name. It was on the tip of my tongue there, Fifty Shades of Grey. And I think they came out with a couple of sequels and stuff like that. And here's a movie that was, I mean, number one in the box office, a best-selling book and all this kind of stuff. And some of the things 
things in that book, as I understand it, as I read reviews on it and all that sort of stuff, was some of the violence portrayed in the sexual encounters and the sort of, they would have called it adventurous, but certainly some abusive situations in that movie depicting it between two consenting adults and and kind of calling it okay. And what's really interesting, I think, is that there seems to be an increase. And so this article links to a couple of studies that have been recently done that talk about the amount of women who in anonymous surveys talk about experiencing in sexual encounters unwanted choking, slapping, spitting, gagging, and all that kind of stuff during consensual sex. And basically what this article goes on to say is that because pornography itself is getting more and more violent in nature, more and more aggressive in nature, so too then are the men who are addicted to these sorts of things in their own real-life sexual encounters. There's an article that's linked in the article that I'm describing to you that talks about an ex-porn star, an ex-adult film star who got out of the business because of how much she was requested to do the face slapping and the choking and the gagging and all that kind of stuff, the really uh, kind of violent stuff. So it's just an interesting article and uh, even her perspective as an ex adult film star it kind of shows the rise and what this all comes down to and I would I would also recommend the it's not a Christian ministry but I think it's uh, it's run by Christians and it's sort of mainstreaming the problems with pornography in a way that even non-Christians ought to be able to get behind and of course I don't believe in anything whether it's fighting against abortion or fighting against pornography I don't think any of it should be devoid of the gospel but there is a, a website called fight the new drug and I would encourage you to go there as well and they're really good at uh, kind of um, looking at some of the psychological things happening and what's going on in men's brains. And, the, and in fact, the reason it's called Fight the New Drug is because they link pornography to a drug use. And in the same way that a drug addict needs a higher dose of whatever his drug is in order to experience the same high. So too do those who are involved and addicted to pornography need more realistic, more violent, more aggressive sorts of videos in order to gain the same level of enjoyment. They've actually tracked a lot of the ways in which pornography actually changes the male brain. And it even actually causes men who are married to actually not be able to be aroused as well in actual sexual encounters with their real wives. And so pornography has just a whole list of things that it does to destroy real relationships. And above all that, God would call it lust and sin. And so as Christians, we ought to avoid it. But I would encourage you to share this article on your Facebook page because pornography is one of those things that has become mainstream and nobody kind of talks about the the high levels of incest and violence that's depicted there. And so you have this culture who who everybody kind of agrees that we shouldn't abuse women and that, you know, rape is bad. And yet all of these same men who are throwing up the hashtag me too. And so they look like feminists to their social media followers are watching pornography that's essentially changing their brain and turning them into rapists and violent uh, people who are far more prone to abuse women. And that's what this article is all about. 
It actually follows through some of the statistics, men who, because of sexual addiction to pornography, slowly started integrating some of the violence that they were seeing in the movies into their sexual encounters, which just spilled out into everyday life. And some of them are now in prison. Some of them um, have been charged with domestic violence, and, uh, and some of them have even gone on to murder And so I would encourage you to share this. And more than anything, I guess, I would just uh, remind you that we talk a lot about abortion. We talk a lot about homosexuality. We talk a lot about transgenderism in terms of waging the culture war here on this podcast and how Christians ought to engage. But let me just remind you that pornography is one of the biggest and most prevalent enemies that needs to be put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. And I think this is the way... I think this is the way that you can get the the fight against pornography uh, mainstream in the world um, because the culture is is into this right now with the whole Me Too movement. And so use this as an opportunity to say that pornography leads to abusive women and sexual assault and all those kinds of things. So that's what I would say about that. I'm going to transition now and I want to talk about a quick movie review. And by movie review, what I really mean is uh, we're going to play Spot the Lie. So the movie that I'm talking about is the new movie. It's out in theaters right now called Last Christmas. So this is a movie, kind of the this year's Christmas movie that comes out in December and always does well in the box office because we're suckers for Christmas movies because we always are looking for some sort of experience that's going to allow us to get into the Christmas spirit. But what I wanted to talk about specifically is in this movie, and, and there are going to be spoilers here. So if you, you know, if you're going to go see it, then I would just say, you know, skip maybe the next seven to eight minutes of this podcast and you'll probably skip past it. So I just want to kind of talk about the, the general storyline. And then I want to talk about where I think there's a small insidious lie um, that is worth spotting if you go and see this with your spouse or a loved one or with, you know, friends. Uh, You know, my wife went and saw this with a couple of girlfriends from the church and she came back and she really disliked the movie and she told me about it and we played Spot the Lie together and that's where this is sort of coming from. So she went and watched this movie. Basically, the premise is there's this woman who uh, is very obviously a bad person. She uses people and she takes advantage of people and she steals and she's greedy and she's selfish and all this kind of stuff. She's promiscuous. She's very obviously depicted in this movie, even in the secular movie, as a bad person. And you find out that she's ill. And so you think that maybe some of her hardness and maybe some of her difficulty is in relating to people and everything is has to do with this illness and, and feeling like maybe life gave her a bad rap or whatever. But then partway through the movie, there's this guy who shows up and he shows up. I, I won't go into all the details, even though I'm going to kind of spoil the gotcha ending here. He gets to know her and it looks like this is going to be a romantic story as they get to know one another. And slowly he kind of makes her look at life a little differently, softens her edges. Uh, she starts to see because he volunteers and he does all these great things that, you know, life is more than being selfish and uh, sort of the the main I guess point of the movie is that you will be more happy if you serve others than if you live life serving yourself which sounds like a pretty good Christmas message and a pretty good Christian message but the sort of gotcha ending and this is where I'll say spoiler alert if anybody actually wants to go see this is that the gotcha at the end of the movie is that you find out he's not actually real he's a bit of a figment of her imagination and her illness caused her to need to get a heart transplant And the guy that she begins to see is actually the guy who died and the heart that she got. So he was the heart donor and his heart inside of her is what made her a good person. 
And so, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. And so there's something here that I think is worth exploring a little bit. And I think, you know, if any of you do see this with coworkers or girlfriends or I don't know, guys, friends, it's a different sort of guy's night than I, <laughs> than I would recommend, but you know, to each his own. So if you go out and watch this movie with anybody, I think a really good thing if you're with non-Christians to kind of talk about is, it's just the way in which she becomes a good person. I think this is interesting, right? We as Christians would say that nobody is a good person, right? Romans 3 talks about there's no one good, no, not one, no one seeks for God, no one understands. These are some of the, you know, the uh, Genesis 6 that talks about how the intentions of man's heart is only evil all the time. And in Jeremiah, it talks about how the heart is deceptive above all things who can know it. And so you look at some of those things, which are some of the foundational verses for what we call the doctrine of total depravity, right? The belief that apart from the grace of God, nobody is even good enough to choose God. We are totally depraved. Sin has completely ruined us. We lack the capacity to choose God, to seek for God. And it's only by his grace in acting first that anybody gets saved. And this goes into the whole doctrine that we call Calvinism or the doctrines of grace or the sovereignty of God in salvation, clearly outlined throughout the Bible, but perhaps most explicitly in Romans 3, 5, and uh, Ephesians 1 and 2. So anyway, all that to say, you could get into a really interesting conversation about how what she needed in order to become sort of a good person was a new heart. But of course, the kind of weird lie in all of this is that he wasn't real. The heart she got was a very physical heart. And so all it was was sort of this supernatural experience that slowly turned her into a good person. What's interesting is that some of the the dialogue and some of the lines that stood out to my wife, Colleen, was about kind of looking inside and being the person you really want to be. And so there's this, I think, this insidious lie that talks about how if we can only look deep inside ourselves and be honest with ourselves, then we can become the people that we're supposed to be. We're to become the good people that we really are inside underneath all the muck. And so they do kind of play this victim card of she's been dealt a bad hand and all that kind of stuff. And that's, I think, where the lie is. But I think you can actually cut through that. If you end up watching this movie, which, you know, my wife is a sucker for cheesy Christmas movies and she didn't even like this one. So I don't recommend it that highly. But if you're set on seeing the popular Christmas movie of the season, Last Christmas, I think is a good opportunity to open up a conversation about the need for a new heart. And I think if you're bold enough, you can get into a conversation where this is exactly what the Bible says, actually, in order to become the person that you're called to be, in order to be the person that God wants you to be, you need a new heart and only God gives a new heart and he replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh and all that kind of stuff. So there is a lie in there, but if you spot it and can turn it to the truth, I think there's some some great opportunities for you to use this culture, this movie in the culture, in order to have some gospel conversations around uh, the water cooler at your office or in your neighborhood or with your friends or whatever the case may be. So speaking of Christmas, I just kind of wanted to explore something. I've been studying Ecclesiastes in order to preach through it. And as I was reading Ecclesiastes, I, it just dawned on me how... I think relevant this text is for Christmas. So I'm going to read a little bit of Ecclesiastes and kind of draw some comparisons to what the Christmas season is all about and and maybe even talk about how we spot the Christmas lie in culture, so to speak. So Ecclesiastes starts, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Verse 2 of chapter 1, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
Now, I won't get into all of this, but I am a big believer that uh, Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. There's some modern scholarship that says that maybe he isn't, but I actually think that the internal evidence is overwhelming that it is, in fact, Solomon. Not only does he call himself the son of David, king in Jerusalem, not only does he talk about knowledge in, in many of the same ways that Solomon talks about wisdom, but as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, I think what you see is that whoever the author is and whoever this preacher is, they have done a lot of things that Solomon has done and say a lot of things that Solomon has said. And so that'll be kind of a quick summary, but I would definitely say that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. Now, the other reason that's important is because anybody who knows their biblical narrative understands that Solomon kind of had a bit of an apostasy, right? A bit of a falling away. So Solomon starts off on a good foot. He asks the Lord for wisdom in order to rule God's people. And it looks like in the early years of his reign as king that he does just that. And there are some stories of him using his wisdom in order to lead God's people. And he does a great job and he, he leads Israel to prosperity. But then he begins to multiply all the things that Deuteronomy tell you not to multiply. He multiplies storehouses to store up his wealth. He multiplies cattle and horses and he multiplies wives. In doing all of those things, he enters into sin, and it's really his sin and through his son Manasseh and the sin of his son that really leads to Israel's separation as northern and southern kingdoms. And so the kingdom that his father united, his sin kind of paved the way for Manasseh's sin, his son, to really break the kingdom in half. And of course, when he multiplied wives, he erected altars in Israel to his foreign wives' false gods. And so it was a bit of a train wreck uh, later on in his life. So the question becomes, well, when did he write Ecclesiastes? Because Ecclesiastes sure sounds like an old man reflecting on his life. And so I think, even though the narrative of the Bible doesn't necessarily give us the turning back of Solomon, I think that Ecclesiastes is the turning back of Solomon. I think that he started off on a good foot. I think that he fell into sin and fell away from following the Lord. And then whether he had a conversion experience later in his life or a sort of coming back around after some very intense sinful years— I think that Ecclesiastes is Solomon coming back to the understanding that without God, everything is futile. It certainly seems like an old man reflecting on his life and a lot of the things that he pursued with his life turning to ash in his hand. And that's where you get to this verse two, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And I think our modern English translations don't do a good job with this translation. The word vanity, the Hebrew word is havel, which is actually the name of Abel, incidentally. But this word havel, really what it means, havel, habel, what it really means is a mist or a vapor or a breath or kind of a puff of smoke. And so I think, you know, mist, mist, everything is mist or vapor, vapor, everything is vapor. I think that's maybe even a better translation because that at least would cause us to stop and think. Whereas vanity used in this context isn't necessarily part of our modern vocabulary. And so anyway, you look at all this with that understanding, I think you understand Ecclesiastes a little bit more. A vapor or a puff of smoke or mist is a far better translation of the word because essentially what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about is Solomon kind of trying to grab hold of all these various things that he thinks are going to bring hope and joy and peace into his life, things that are going to make him satisfied and happy 
and glad and feel fulfilled. And essentially everything that he grasps onto is like trying to grab smoke. And that's the deceptive part that I think is embedded in this word is if you look at vapor, it looks solid enough, but if you try to grab it, you wouldn't be able to actually grab smoke or vapor or mist. And I think that's what he's getting at here is that everything that he, especially as king and as a, as a wealthy king, nothing was off the table to him, whether it was women or riches or material possessions or power or respect or fame, whatever it was that he wanted, he could have as king and nothing in this earthly world was denied to him. And in a lot of ways, I think that this relates to Christmas for a whole number of reasons. You know, we all kind of go into the Christmas season with these lofty expectations. And Christmas is all about, and all of these cheesy Christmas movies that we watch or the things that we say to each other or the cars, talking about this this magical time of year when, when dreams come true, wishes come true, when magic happens, all that kind of stuff. And so we enter into the Christmas season and sometimes Christians work so hard to kind of unentangle themselves from the consumerism and the materialism of the Christmas season. And that's a good thing. But sometimes we set just as unrealistic and just as lofty expectations on our Christmas, just not related to physical things. So we might think that maybe Christmas is the time of year when the whole family will come together. And and there's, you know, all many of us struggle with family. There are difficulties in our families. There are strained relationships, broken relationships, divorce, all kinds of different things. And, and oftentimes, I know I come into the Christmas season sometimes with the expectation that like somehow Christmas with the right gift or the right meal or, or kind of the right amount of hospitality as we open our homes to our families that, you know, dad will say, I love you for the first time, or mom will say, I love you for the first time, or somebody will say, I'm proud of you, or, or you know, political differences or religious differences are going to kind of be washed underneath the table. And we have these sort of unrealistic expectations of what's going to happen as families come together at Christmas. And then when those expectations aren't met, you know, we enter into the kind of post-holiday blues, the despondency and the despair that come after the holidays so often, right? Or sometimes, you know, it's it's that right gift. Maybe you and your spouse have been having relational difficulties and you haven't gotten along so well. And so you think that if you get the right gift and you're just attentive enough and you think long and hard about what sort of gift is going to make the difference, it's good to have family around your table and it's good to get a thoughtful gift for your spouse. But if you're placing too much expectation on what that going to accomplish, then you're just as guilty as thinking that some sort of material possession that you're going to find underneath the tree is going to make your life good. So the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm just going to read through the opening chapter, and then I'm going to skip to chapter two and, and read something else that I think is important. So, so Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there it will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. And there is nothing new under the 
the Son? Is there a thing at which it is said, See, this is new. Ah, it has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrances of later things. Yet to among those who come after, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I plied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, all that it is done and in all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. I'll jump down to verse 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. If you jump to verse 18 of chapter 2, he talks about the vanity of labor. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the futility and the vanity of riches. And so he's kind of going through all these things, whether it's riches, whether it's ingenuity with new things, whether it's labor and toil, whether it's wisdom, whatever it is that we achieve, he calls it vanity. And I think at the end of chapter 2, and certainly once you get into the middle chapters in chapter 9, but in chapter 24, there's a really interesting kind of shift. He says, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And if you're reading this carefully, you're going to get to that verse and you're going to say, wait a second, he just talked about the vanity and the, and the meaninglessness of eating and drinking and finding enjoyment in toil. He said that that's not possible. So what is it different about verse 24? He says, this also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. And so I think the analogy here is that God gives to everybody and everything under the sun is available to everybody. But there's something that's not under the sun that God gives to only those who fear him, right? Only to Christians, right? To the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. We know that no one pleases God outside of faith. And so he's talking prophetically, obviously, he's talking about those who have faith in God, those who fear God. He makes that more explicit in chapter 9. But the point here is that what he's saying is that God is the one who gives gifts to men. And if we understand that everything in this life is meant to point back to him, that's where we can find enjoyment in eating and drinking and labor and toil. So it's like the analogy that I used is that um, he gives everybody, sinner and saint, right, Christian and non-Christian, a can of peaches, but only to the Christians does he give the can opener. The point here is that he's given labor and achievement and purpose and riches and food and relationships to everybody. But the only people who can actually be fulfilled by those things are the people who understand that God was the one that given it to them. So you will never find joy, lasting joy and satisfaction in food, in relationships, in hospitality, in your spouse, in your children, any of those kinds of things, unless you allow them to be good gifts from God and you look past them, through them, to the God who gave them to you. So uh, later on in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. The point here is that for those of us who have had our works accepted, that is the work of Christ accepted on our behalf, for those of us who live with the knowledge that we belong to God now and forever, to us, 
is given the capacity to actually enjoy the good gifts of life. And so at Christmas time, our tables ought to be full and our homes ought to be full and underneath our tree ought to be full and relationships ought to be full and plentiful. But the expectation isn't on those things to bring us joy. The expectation is that we already have joy because God has given these things to us and so we can enjoy the fleeting pleasures that he's given to us because the whole point of why relationships and food and riches and achievement don't bring lasting joy to the non-Christian is because nothing is guaranteed in this life. You can be thankful for health and then have it taken away with the next diagnosis. You can be thankful for your riches and then lose it all the next time the market takes a swing. You can find happiness in a family that God has given to you, but you can lose them all in a car accident tomorrow, right? Like nothing is guaranteed. And so the idea is if we have joy that is generated from something outside of the things that God has given to us, then we can have joy in the things that he's given to us because we recognize that it's from a sovereign God who controls all things. And our joy doesn't come from the knowledge that God has given them to us and therefore won't take them away. The knowledge is that God has given them to us for a season and whether he gives or whether he takes, blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and takes away. And so only Christians can actually have joy and therefore only Christians can find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in the Christmas season because the Christmas season is full of fleeting pleasures. But as Christians who know that we are finite, but our creator is not, we can find joy and satisfaction in all these things. You know, it's so ironic that at Christmas time, we exchange material gifts at a time where we celebrate the reality when Jesus came into the world to teach us that joy doesn't come from material things, but comes in a person, right? And so joy peace, hope came in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And because he has saved us, because of what he's done for us, all of the fleeting pleasures of joy can be enjoyed. So go this Christmas season, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, open up your gifts with joy, give gifts with joy, have people around your table with laughter, eat more food than you can fit in your stomach. Be charitable to people. Invite into your home those who don't have family or friends. And in all of those things, enjoy them because God has already accepted your works in Christ. And that's, I think, the message and how I think Ecclesiastes fits into Christmas. And I think it's a, an important thing for us to remind ourselves of, of as we jump into the Advent season. So... I don't get to say it because I'm not quite sure when we're going to release this based on scheduling conflicts, but whenever you hear this, it'll be before Christmas. And so have a very Merry Christmas and enjoy your time keeping Christ at the center. Have a wonderful time. We'll see you next week. Hopefully I'll be joined with Poots and we'll be back to regular rebel podcasting. Merry Christmas. Goodbye.